Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of being together and for the technology that enables us to be in community and to study your holy word. We pray that you would bless us in our study of the book of Acts, that the knowledge we absorb would not just find its way to our head, but into our heart and from our heart into our lives and from our lives into this world that you love so much. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Man. Okay, I'm going to share my screen here, and today we get to follow the adventures of Barnabas and Saul, and I'm going to take us, I think, through verse 52, and you'll notice there are some missing verses. What you're going to miss is a really long sermon from Saul in a synagogue in Perga of Pamphylia. And um, so we can talk about that if you want, but it's a, a retelling of the story of God's salvation culminating in Jesus. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people urged them to speak about these things the next Sabbath. When the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who spoke to them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and blaspheming. They contradicted what was spoken by Paul. Then both Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you, since you reject it and judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life. We are now turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light for the Gentiles, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they praised the word of the Lord. As many as had been destined for eternal life became believers. Thus the word of the Lord spread throughout the region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their region. So they shook the dust off their feet and protest against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. A few things just to note about this and then we'll see where the energy is as we study this chapter or at least the first part of it. We start with a snapshot at the church of Antioch, and we have a lot of hints that the church at Antioch was a prominent church. Last week, it was at Antioch that they were first called Christians. You might remember that. Others self-identified the members of the way as being different from those in the synagogue who confessed Jesus. So Antioch is where they were first called Christians, but the fact that there are so many prophets and teachers that can be remembered at Antioch itself means that this was a prominent hub of the early church's expansion. And this list of prophets and teachers is very interesting. You've got 
a member of the court of Herod the ruler. And so someone pretty high up in the government is um, a, a convert to Christianity and considered a prophet and a teacher. And the prophets, teachers, people spent the time in worship and fasting. And it's in this context of a commitment to a spiritual practice, to worship and fasting that the Holy Spirit speaks. One potential topic of conversation is, does the Holy Spirit speak with such clarity today? Here we're told, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul. Does the Holy Spirit still say things to the church with such clarity? And how do we increase our capacity to hear the Spirit's words? And again, even after the Spirit speaks, they continue with their fasting and prayer. And so practices of piety are very central to the early church and connected to the movement of the Holy Spirit. I point that out only because we often think about these things, if only subconsciously, as being intention, right? Practices of piety, we tend to think these are things that we do, that we engage in. And then when we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of freedom. We think of the Lord doing what the Lord wills. But it's important to note that for Luke, these things go together and that the practices of piety aren't mechanisms for controlling the Spirit, but the Spirit does seem to show up when these things are taking place in the book of Acts. Uh, as Paul and Barnabas have their missionary journey gain acceleration, uh, at first people are really urging them to speak more and more about these things. And you've got devout converts to Judaism who are urging them to continue in the grace of God, who are basically um, saying that what you're doing is good. We support you, we encourage you, and we want you to keep doing this. But as this movement gains prominence, and we're told in verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. I mean, this is a major thing. Um, the only other time in scripture a whole city listens to the word of the Lord is in Jonah when the people of Nineveh um, all repent at Jonah's preaching. But here we have a whole city <laughs> who's on the verge of conversion. But then there's this twist in 45 where the Jews, and I think that's code for Jewish leaders, because remember, um, most of these early Christians are still self-identifying as the people of Israel. Um, the Jews um, see the popularity of this movement, and we're told they're filled with jealousy and that they blaspheme by contradicting what was spoken by Paul. Now, remember, blasphemy was the charge laid upon Jesus. It was also the charge laid upon Stephen at his stoning. But now there's a subtle shift of who the true blasphemers are, of what the real blasphemy is. And it is to contradict and to go against this message that Paul and Barnabas are the spokesmen for. Um, and then whenever they speak out in uh, protest, right, to uh, the opposition, what do they say? They say, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. This phrase is very common in Luke-Acts. It was necessary. It's a very specific Greek phrase, and part of the theology of Luke is that everything unfolding is a necessary part of the plan of God, that what's happening is not an accident, it's not an oops, it's not plan B. Um, it was necessary for this to happen. So 
uh, one example of this in the Gospel of Luke is the road to Emmaus, right, where Jesus is walking with these two men who are marveling at what happened outside of Jerusalem, and the risen Christ says, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The implication being, yes, it was necessary. Um, And in a sense, um, many New Testament authors say that it was necessary for this message not to be fully received by the people of Israel so that the door could open up to the Gentiles. Here in verse 46, there's a quote of Isaiah 49.6, where God says, I have set you, and he's talking to the people of Israel, I've set you, O Israelites, to be a light for the non-Israelites, to be a light to the Gentiles, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so what do we have when a whole city is gathering to hear the word of the Lord? Well, we have a fulfillment of this prophecy. The salvation is reaching to the ends of the earth. And yet, the Jewish leaders are resisting and rejecting the very thing that it was necessary to happen. Um, And so there's a little bit of a, a paradox happening there. And so what we're left with in verse 48 is that the Gentiles hear that the door has been opened to them And they're very glad, and they praise the word of the Lord. But then in verse 50, we have the Jewish leaders inciting um, persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And that persecution will continue until the end of the book of Acts, where Paul will end up in Rome on trial for his life. um, And the the whole book will end with him being in jail. One final word, and then we'll see what is of interest to you. Um, after Paul and Barnabas deal with this roller coaster of both excitement and many people being converted, but then very stark opposition, we're told that they shook the dust off their feet in protest against them. This is a direct allusion to Luke 9 5 when Jesus sends missionaries out and he says, uh, If they don't welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. It raises the question. What does this mean, metaphorically speaking? What does it mean to shake the dust off your feet uh, when someone does not receive you or welcome your message? And and what is the application for us today? Um, And then finally, you know, I don't know how you would react to this. Uh, I'd be frustrated, you know, if someone sent me out to preach and the whole city's gathering and this is a really successful ministry, a bunch of people stir up some observation, uh, some, some, uh, opposition and try to get me in trouble, I'd be frustrated, I'd be angry, uh, I'd be disheartened. Uh, But that's not what we're told the disciples feel in verse 52. They're filled with joy. They're filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And so amidst this difficult moment in the church's life, amidst the roller coaster, the ups, the downs, the uncertainty, the disciples are filled with joy, meaning that whatever joy is, it is something that coexists with opposition, with resistance, with suffering, at least as articulated by the author of Luke Acts. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and pause there, and we'll see what interests you. Just was just the last sentence, filled with joy. Um, in the Stephen Ministry Group, we read the book, Book of Joy, with Desmond Tutu and um, the Dalai Lama, 
and both of them have um you know been exiled been put in jail and yet they have found this inner joy of um you know being being able to to have that peace um in spite of the trials and tribulations around them um and Julie, yes. what do you think that joy is? Because if it coexists with the trials and tribulations, how do we make sense of that? What is that? I think it's a sense of peace, um, a sense of knowing that you are loved and, and that wherever you are, you can be a blessing even when it looks pretty dark and, um, and be thankful for where you are. And, it reminds me a little bit about um, Corrie ten Boom, who wrote The Hiding Place. And I remember, you know, one specific incident where they're in the, the concentration camp. And, you know, she takes, they take, she and her sister take very seriously the command to, in everything, give thanks for this is God's will for you. And apparently um, they get infested with lice in their barracks and they give thanks for the lice even though they don't know why and then all of a sudden they realize that the german guards are not coming in to their barracks because of the lice because they're afraid of it and so they can have bible studies in the barracks mm. <laughs> so you know it's very kind of counterintuitive but i remember that you know I thought, oh my gosh how can you give thanks for that and and um Sometimes even when we don't understand it, if we're thankful for, you know, that very moment or that place or that peace or that understanding that, you know, no matter where we are, God loves us, that's, that can be joyful. But yeah, it's, it's awfully, you know, it's hard and it's counterintuitive for sure. That's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful intro. And I just want to say three quick things and they're just going to be bullet points just to kind of add some gas to the fire of this good conversation um one is you said you know it's uh, I, I think about um the blessing in the episcopal church which quotes i believe ephesians and the peace of god which surpasses all understanding mm -hmm. the peace of god surpasses understanding it's not something we can fully wrap our mind around nor is it something the world understands jesus says I do not give as the world gives, right? The peace I leave with you is not the same peace the world gives. And so whatever this peace of God is, it does surpass understanding. The second thing I want to say is I do think that this peace is found in learning to give thanks for everything that we receive as from the hand of the Lord. Um, you know, Paul, I think in Thessalonians says, Give thanks to God at all times and in all circumstances. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. And I will self-disclose that your rector is not fully there. Uh, I long to be there. You know, I'm still uh, have a tendency to pout and to, you know, fall into my sad pouty ways when things don't fully go my way. But I do recognize that I would like to be in a different place. I think I had a third thing to say, but I've, forgotten it already. John, thank you for saying your second bullet point. <laughs> well, it's hard to find that, that, that gratitude and thanksgiving um, at times. Um, but, you know, other times it does show up. So. 
Well, and I don't think it's a one-time deal. Mm -hmm. I think I think that we have to get to that place over and over again in our lives. Um, I don't think God calls us to immediately say, oh, thank you so much for this. You know, I think we have to struggle with it and we have to um, be challenged by it and we have to get to that place. Um, we're not there immediately. I don't think any of us are. And I think it's something that we have to see over and over again. Um, you know, sometimes you look back and you go, gosh, that really was a blessing, but it sure didn't feel like it when you were going through it. Absolutely. Well, just following on that, I, I put in mind, I can't, I can't remember now the exact verses it said, but Paul says, furthermore, I rejoice in my suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces hope and hope does not disappoint. And, and what I think he's saying there is, it is through this process that we learn all these things. And so we rejoice in them because we know, we believe that it leads to hope. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's another good demonstration of the difference between being happy and being joyful. Right. Joy is a very different state of being, whereas happy is a much more fleeting. I think being happy is, is just circumstantial. And joy is, is not based on the circumstances, but on the love and grace of God. Yeah, I think it's also worth noting that joy is the fruit of the spirit. Um, you know, what does Paul say in Galatians? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that the spirit alone can produce joy, which coexists with really good times and bad times. But yeah, happiness, that seems to be dependent on things going our way. And to be really clear, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. <laughs> I want to be happy. I want you to be happy. Um, and there's nothing wrong with seeking happiness in appropriate ways. I just think it's important. It's not like one's good, the other's bad. It's just that one is the fruit of the spirit, which can coexist with things not going our way. And one seems to be dependent on many factors outside of our control. You know, I think the interesting thing about 2020 is I know a lot of people who have experienced joy this year. I don't know anyone who's been happy the whole time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, and, you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, hope can also just dump you right back into um, the suffering when it when hope produces disappointment mm -hmm. um that yeah at, at the at, at, at circumstances well i think that's where um just Black. go ahead oh, i was gonna say i think one thing you know there's a lot of once we get into like theological language there's hair splitting over words that um 
we can sometimes do. And I think one of those where it might be worth splitting hairs is between optimism and hope. Um, because optimism is based on a belief that the current order of things will improve. Hope is based on a conviction that there is a different order of things called the kingdom of God, which will ultimately heal and manifest and take over the present order of things. And so, for instance, I'm very optimistic that a vaccine to the coronavirus that is 90% effective will be given to my arm by May. I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful that if that does not happen, God will be with me. (laughs) It's one of those, you know, it's a little bit of splitting hairs and it doesn't necessarily take away from your comment, but I think it's always important to sharpen our language as much as we can. Yeah, no, but that's, that's an important distinction. So thank you. And I don't think you're splitting hairs on this one. Those are, those are substantively very different. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Would it also be true to say that when, Paul speaks of hope and so forth and so on, that the the account of suffering and disappointment has been in fact rolled into another story, namely that of Christ, who went through all these things and yet was raised. Mm -hmm. And so there is this hope in an ultimate victory. It's not a kind of sanguine assumption that I'm I'm not gonna have to go through this. Uh, it's 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 a, it's a sure belief that that's not what li- what li- lies at the end of this. Mm-hmm. So what I think I hear you saying, Philip, is and and this to me I think is the Christian hope, or, or not the fullness of the Christian hope, but the Christian hope as it relates to suffering and resurrection and the kingdom of God. It's not just that our suffering that suffering and pain will be defeated and overcome, which alone would be really wonderful news. That's Mm -hmm. great news. But that God will somehow use the pain, the suffering, that it won't be meaningless, that it will somehow be factored in uh, as Mm -hmm. part of like the great grand finale that God does, you know, with creation. So the, the metaphor I used in an Easter sermon, I think this past Easter was, a spider web and uh, I'd kept trying to kill this web to knock it down but every time I knocked the web down the web was rebuilt in a more beautiful intricate way and that my effort to destroy this web actually only made it a lot stronger because of the brilliance and resilience of this spider that you know mm-hmm. it's a metaphor but in a similar way that all the ways that your lives have been torn apart, that our world has been torn apart, that it's not just that God's going to pat you on the back and wipe away the tears, but that somehow Mm -hmm. in the same way that the risen Christ had his scars on his wrists and his resurrection, and that what used to be a source of shame was now a source of glory in the same way that will be true for your suffering. Mm -hmm. That's a hard thing to believe, but it is the Christian hope. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It is. It's great. I love it. I I read a um, book by Cynthia Bourgeau. Some of you have probably read it. Um, Mystical Hope, and it and it talks about the eternal hope that we have with the Holy Spirit and with Christ. And 
and it made me look at, at hope in a, uh, a broader sense. So, Was there anything, so I've never read anything by Cynthia Bourgeau. Was there something uh, particularly meaningful that you, you read that and you said, wow, that, that really, really hit me? Yes, one, one story uh, that she tells, um, and, and you've already alluded to it, was saying that, that God is not on a timetable, but she, she tells the story of looking at her daughter who's going to meet her beloved, and from her vantage point on the island, up on the hill, she can see that her daughter's boyfriend or, is, is also coming to meet her. But she knows that her daughter is is anxious and wondering if he'll show and all of those things. But because she has a broader view from from her standpoint, she can see that this is going to happen. And so, uh, but and and she talks about God's God's view is of course um, much broader than ours, and that she she had hoped that she could let her daughter know yes it, it's it's coming it you know so but it's uh it's just it's about the enduring hope uh, like you said not that every not that all these little details will work out but in the fullness of time it it's um it's a different view than than we have right now so beautiful it's, in, it's interesting she's an interesting teacher i've i've enjoyed reading some of her work well good Beautiful. That's lovely. I've enjoyed her as well. Um, uh, Wisdom Jesus, I think is the right title. Mm -hmm. But that was a good book. I, I, I can read it many times and always learn something new from that. Mm -hmm. I agree. Lovely. Good. So may, I want to I want to tie this conversation into something else and. Uh, a theme in the passage because, you know, so what is it in terms of joy that enables us to feel it or to experience it? You know, I don't want to just say joy is a feeling, uh, although it can be, to experience it, to dwell in it during difficult times. Um, and I think for me, uh, part of that could be tied to a knowledge that God is with us in difficult circumstances. Um, and so I want to just kind of tie that to that phrase, it was necessary, um, that is so important for Luke. Um, whenever Luke says it was necessary, I think it's a coded way of him basically saying God's providence is very clear, that all of this is part of, I don't know if the word plan is the right word. We always talk about a plan and that can be misleading, but part of a, an intentional plan, design, unfolding, that God is, um, where God is God. And so I wonder if, if that, if this whole idea of, of things having intentionality, of God uh, factoring in all of human suffering, if, if somehow you can make a connection in your mind between that and joy, because I think a lot of times when we don't feel joy, uh, there's always this fear of nihilism, this fear that our suffering is random and meaningless. And so I'm just wondering how you connect those, or if you do.
I well, one of the things that... Oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead, Phil. No, you go ahead. No, I'm Please. fine. <laughs> All I was going to say is that the word used for plan, or we translate plan, can also mean the counsel, the considered intent of God is. Uh, God takes counsel with himself and the way he, he counsels himself, that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. If we could only see into the mystery of that counsel. <laughs> well, his ways are not our ways, remember that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And Julie, you're about to pipe in. Well, I think they do go together. Um, you know, and I guess just from what I've been through in the past, you know, six months. I mean, when I first got the diagnosis, I was pretty devastated. Um, uh, you know, because this was a bad tumor and it was kind of way way out in left field. And, and I, I, you know, I think I've shared this, but I would purposely, every time I'd had chemo, I would purposely set up, and Martha knows this, I would set up a time when a bunch of the ladies would go hiking together. It gave me something to hope for, and it gave me something to be joyful with, in spite of, you know, the the week of no fun after chemo, and um, <laughs> and and then you know I got to that point where I'd be thankful. Okay, thank you, Lord. I'm done with one round of chemo, um, and I have something to look forward to. And and so you know, some of that was just learning how to to get through because um, I felt fortunate that I, that I was responding the way I did. I don't know if I would have felt quite so hopeful or so joyful if I would have had a lot of, you know, really bad side effects. Um, but I, I did feel, um, you know, I did get to that place where I felt peaceful and I felt like I was, I was going to make it. Yeah. I was going to make it through because as you can imagine, you know, you have to get chemo, which in, in itself is bad enough. And then you find out there's this major pandemic and you're going to be at really high risk for it because of what you're going through. And, and, you know, I, I had a little freak out in the beginning and, and said, I'm just, I just know I'm going to die. And my daughter said, listen, <laughs> she was there. She said, remember that God is walking with you. You know, I, and he's going to go with you every step of the way. And I, I said, okay, yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to get to that point where I believe that. And I, I, uh, and we all went hiking with masks on. Yeah, really, really nice. Well, really, thank you for that. First is, uh, if if all you had amidst all this was a little freak out, then you have some really <laughs> pretty pretty astounding. And I think. It was a, a normal experience for many. Uh, if you had just one thing, um, you know, because the world didn't stop, you know, people have hard things every year. If you just had one thing in addition to COVID, it was a normal thing for you maybe to literally believe the world was ending for at least a day. Like the, the, it was a normal experience to have and very understandable. You know, the, the, the thing about the, this, this conversation, and it's really just a question 
I think that we're asked to hold a very sensitive paradox here. Because one of the things that we never say to other people, it would not be advisable or even true or, or godly to say, is if, you know, someone is undergoing great suffering before we know anything, you know, when someone gets a diagnosis or you hear about a tragedy, to start quoting Luke and to say, well, it was necessary. You oh. know, and, and it's all factored in, you know, that these are not things that we say to people. Right. But they are things that we first see if we can say to ourselves, right? We first look into our own life and engage our own suffering and ask what God has to say about it, you know? So I don't have the authority, uh, at least most of the time, sometimes I have the authority, but I don't have the, the authority most of the time to look at suffering people and to not enter that suffering with them, but instead just to say, oh, don't worry, it's all part of a plan, right? That's not being a pastor. That's just kind of being an intellectual jerk and not going to people, you know, where they are. Um, but on the other hand, I think we are to find hope in our suffering if we can because we believe not that God is causing suffering in, in some cruel way, but because God is resourceful, that God can use it, that God is with us in our suffering, and that in a mystical way, um, we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ in a way that we don't understand. You're, you're reminding me of our pastor here in Bend, whose wife survived a very challenging flu episode last winter. Julie will remember this. And he confessed that he said, if one more person comes into this hospital room and tries to tell me it's all part of God's plan and I should just follow along, I'm just going to beat them up. You know, <laughs> I mean, he got really, really tired of being told that as if it was the panacea for the pain he was suffering, what he was feeling, he and his family. And I, and I thought quite a bit about that. I mean, on one hand, we are, we have to believe that we're part of God's plan, but when things aren't going our way, it, it's, it, you have to take a big gulp and say, all right, you know, I'll follow today, but that's all I'm promising. <laughs> that's all I got is today. <laughs> so I think this is a very important conversation. I find myself uh, uh, in my prayers and so forth when life is difficult, wanting to turn God into a helicopter parent who drops in, snatches me out of the difficulty and everything is, everything's okay again. Whereas I think what I've learned over the years is that it's not that he's gonna swoop down with a helicopter and get me out of this. It's this is something that I'm going through and maybe and can't do anything. I can't remedy that, that I have to go through it. But I do, I go through it with the fact that there's nothing I face that he has not faced that's worse. Mm -hmm. And he has gone through it and he has come out blessed by God. And somehow or another, I, that gives me hope. Not that I'm going to escape life's difficulties. Um, my goodness, without life's difficulties, I wouldn't be half the person I am. So anyway, that, that's what I think. <laughs>
reminds me of the book of Hebrews. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every respect as we have, yet without sin. Without, without sin. And so kind of to Philip's point is that, you know, so the names of God in scripture matter. And so we're getting close to Christmas and his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. With us. Right. And so part of this conversation about joy and suffering is the withness of God uh, in that experience uh, in a way beyond, again, what we can understand. It's not just God, the invisible presence next to us, but with us uh, in, in a deeply intimate, intimate way, something that we can never understand, but only trust in faith. And John, that's a very important point, because remember that the last words of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew are, lo, I am with you until the close of the age. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's the, the parting promise of Jesus. It's beautiful. Okay, I'm going to this hold all this. I want to um, not make the same sin um, as last time. I want to have us read most of this passage. Let me read a little bit about uh, verse 8 uh, to the end of the chapter. Uh, and Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul, looking at him intently, seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, friends, why do this? We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways, yet he has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came there from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowds. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the city. The next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Okay, a few notes. One is you might recall from chapter three when Peter heals the lame man by the temple. Um, he says, gold I have not, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. Um, this story very much parallels that story in very significant ways, even down to the detail in verse 9 of how Paul looked at him intently. It says the exact same thing in Peter's healing of the invalid in Acts chapter 3. And so the repetition of the stories is important because uh, this basically demonstrates that the same power at work in Peter is now at work in Paul, that the former is the apostle to the Jews and the latter the apostle to the Gentiles, and that the Holy Spirit is essentially doing the same stuff. And that detail of Paul looks intently at him 
is really, really important. And, you know, we could do an entire outreach or community service training on that verse of what does it mean to look intently at a homeless person to see him as a human being. Um, that's just kind of a side note. I've always loved that, looked intently at him. This whole thing about the priest of Zeus is absolutely hilarious if you can <laughs> you know, just like see what's happening. I mean, the power of God is so at work and Paul and Barnabas that they just assume that they're gods, right? And they take the pagan gods they've been worshiping and say, y'all must be it. I mean, the priest of Zeus is ready to start slaughtering animals and sacrificing to him. And you know, it's an honest mistake. <laughs> um, Paul doesn't, you know, declare that they will soon drop dead as Peter did for Ananias. Um, but he says, you know, stop doing this. We're here to bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now for Paul, the worthless things uh, that they are to turn from are really just the gods of, you know, the pagan cult worship. Uh, Hermes and Zeus and all of that. But it does raise the question, what are those worthless things in our life that we are to turn away from to embrace the good news? Uh, and so I'll kind of leave that hanging. We'll see if there's any energy there. Um, I think it's important in verse 17 to note Luke's theology of God's revelation apart from the covenant of Israel. And so as I understand it for Luke, God's primary way of revealing himself to humanity was by calling Abraham into relationship, forming a people. In Isaiah 49, 6, those people were to be a light to the nation so that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In other words, through the people of Israel, God wanted to reveal God's self to all of creation. But here we're told, even outside of that, you know, we know you don't know Abraham, even outside of that, God has not left himself without a witness that the rain from heaven, the apples on the trees, the food you eat, all of that bears witness to a generous, loving creator. And so, yes, uh, our main source of revelation is scripture and tradition, but every time it rains, every time you see a flower, right, that is almost like the Bible of creation revealing that there is a creator. So that's how I read those words. And then Paul basically trying to say, this God that you have witnessed, it's not Hermes, it's not Zeus, but it is the living God that I will proclaim to you. And so again, you have the situation where Paul is winning over the city. Uh, and then you have the back and forth, you know, once things get good. And once the movement grows, the Jews come in. And again, Jewish leadership, not all the Jewish people, but the Jewish leadership comes in and they try to win over the crowds. And they do so much so that Paul ends up being stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. But in verse 20, the disciples surround him. So there's a lot kind of inferred there of like the presence of the church surrounding you is inherently healing that the spirit worked through the disciples surrounding the body of Paul. And then he gets up and goes into the city. It's like a mini resurrection, a mini resuscitation. In the same way that, you know, often people will die in the New Testament and the power of the spirit will bring them back to life. It's like a mini version of that is happening here. It doesn't say Paul died, but 
uh, there is a link between the church surrounding him with prayer and love. Remember, the chapter begins with them praying and fasting continually and Paul being able to get up. And then the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. So there's not a one-week break to go get stitches. Um, Paul doesn't go to the infirmary for three weeks. He doesn't take a three-week retreat. He doesn't do counseling in order to heal his psychological <laughs> Right? The next day, he goes on on the journey. And remember what um, Jesus said to the good Ananias. We'll call him the good Ananias. I must show this man how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And last week we heard, it is through many persecutions that we enter the kingdom of God. And so here Paul is modeling that. He gets up and he's not going to waste time crying. He's not going to waste time, you know, praying against those who are out to get him. He's just going to keep shaking the dust off his feet and going to the next town and preaching the gospel. And um, I think that's why we have, you know, 10 letters of his in the New Testament, because that's the sort of missionary he was. So I'll pause there and see what interests you. Continually amazed at how the Jews really hated that, Re really hated the stories of Jesus, uh, of these missionaries being able to convert towns. And I, you know, I just wonder uh, why, why were they so opposed to all of that? And of course, I think it has more to do with politics and economics and faith. But well, I, I mean, I think power. there might be something there. Yeah. What's that, Julie? I think it's all about power. Power. The people who have it don't want to lose it. And that's what they had over the, over the, the Jews and, and the, uh, over the everyday, you know, faithful Jews, they had power and they were going to lose it because these other people were taking away the interest and, and showing them other things. Including the Gentiles. Yeah. Based on the earlier scriptures. So I think, let's go ahead and take a, um, so y'all are both dead on and I'm with you. I always want to, to ask the question, you know, what would I do if I were in their shoes? And I think the way to kind of get into that is to, because here's the thing, they rightly intuited that if people believe their message, that so much of their traditions and like what they valued, like done, no more. Uh, and, and Jesus had a similar impact. I mean, what did he say? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Oh, uh, no eating on the Sabbath? Here, I'm going to eat on the Sabbath. Um, and would often, um, you know, don't touch the unclean, I'm going to touch the unclean. And then he would claim, even though he had broken the law, to have fulfilled it, right? And so I think they rightly intuited that if people believe this message, that so much of the outward forms of their faith uh, would not be able to be sustained for very long. And so, you know, imagine someone coming along and, you know, if it's possible, preaching and getting a lot of momentum that if people truly believe, it would just be the end of the Episcopal Church, right? No more prayer book. No more Father John, no more St. Michael's, that we got to follow the Spirit. This is where truth is going, but 
if we follow the thread, you know, we're all kind of out of our Episcopal faith for a while. And I don't know if that's a good metaphor or not, but that's how I think about it. Well, I'm going to be brave and say, I think that's kind of going on right now in our country. (laughs) uh, In a very anticlimactic way, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, capacity for people to be so fearful that their lives are going to be suddenly up, uh, upended. Uh, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with you on that, Martha. <laughs> Donna, I see a hand. I, I also think that, that um, for the, for the, the people, um, who had these were the Jews who had done what they were taught to do they had they were the teachers and they had learned the lessons and they were they were doing what they were taught to do and now and now they're being told you know this is this may not be necessary and and so where does that leave them and with their life's work and with their true beliefs so it had to be I think it was a I think it I think it probably they could see it as affecting their their economy and the the economy of their faith, but also individually. You know, they they've done what they were they were taught to do. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it raises a real question, uh, and it's very relevant for us. Not so much with the Episcopal Church, but with our life. Although it could be with the question is what is what is our highest love. What, what is our highest love? Um, you know, the definition of sin and Christianity traditionally is linked to idolatry, which is not necessarily loving bad things. Sin is not doing bad things. It's loving good things too much. It's whenever we love the created thing more than the creator. And so um, you can, and you can love anything too much. You can love money too much, alcohol too much. You can love church too much if you love those things too much in proportion to your love for God. Uh, In one of his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, we have this treasure in clay jars. And he's talking about the treasure being Christ and the clay jars, he's referring to some outward forms of of the faith. And as much as I love the Episcopal Church, and I love it dearly, I've taken an oath before God to serve in the councils of the church and to maintain the doctrine and discipline of the Episcopal church. And I intend to keep that vow by the way. But if I ever love the Episcopal church more than I love God, I'm in trouble, right? I'm in trouble. If I ever love um, anything, you know, more than God, I'm in trouble. And, and, And I just wonder if this wasn't an instance where there was a love for the outward forms of the faith, a love for the tradition, a love for the power that came with it, a love for the, you know, prestige maybe, uh, that gradually they slipped away from being able to notice God at work in their midst. It's just a wondering. I I identify with that, John, in the sense that I know that I fell madly in love with the ideas of geography and I did everything I put that first always and then of course it became 
my source of income, survival. But I, I can clearly remember moments in my life where I said, but I'm doing this for God. This is, you know, I, I'm going to go off and go do this. And I now looking back, I think, I don't think that God required me to do this. This is, I told God what I was going to do and said, and I'm doing it for you. And I don't, you know, I can see the error of my ways there. I think that that does happen. That's happened to me. And it's had, you know, sad consequences. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's, there's a lot of that in our society. There's a lot of this pressure to uh, be, well, Richard War would call it your false self, you know, to make these achievements and, and, and satisfy what appears to be socially acceptable. And that many people come to believe that that's God's will. But if we, uh, speaking for myself, if I would have listened to what I really heard God saying to me, I would have said, well, I don't really need to do it this way. And I could have had a lot more fun. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. The only hope I have, speaking of hope, is that I get up every day now and think, okay, I don't have to do that anymore. I can, you know, I mean, I have the luxury of being transformed. Mm -hmm. and, but it's a challenge. Not everyone, you know, it's hard to, to walk away and open yourself up to being transformed. So I think maybe the, the Jews' rejection at an institutional level, but as, as we've all been saying, there's the individual fact of having to step outside of something that's made you feel like you were being a good girl. Thank you. I think also, you know, we tend to focus, and I think this was the problem with, with many of the Jewish um, leaders, is we focus on the, the letter of the law and not on the spirit of the law. In other words, you know, we go back and we say, oh, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. Or we judge people because we feel like they're not doing what, you know, they're not godly. And thereby we are rejecting what God really asks us to do, which is love one another, no matter whether you agree with the way they're living their life or not. And that's the hardest part of the whole thing. Mm -hmm is that we tend to judge and not accept people where they are and and that we feel like it's our responsibility to change people to to you know follow the the law uh when it's really something that god's working out with them we we don't really need to take that responsibility and judge them that's not our that's not our job our job is to take care of and love love our whether they're brothers and sisters or whether they're outside the church, whatever it is. Thank you. Yeah. I suppose the, something, the, this conversation has brought up something in my mind, which I really do not have a full answer. But uh, it occurs to me that Jesus himself paints the history of Israel in terms of rejection of God's messengers. Mm -hmm. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you, etc. 
stoning the prophets, etc., etc. So Jesus places himself with a long history of the people of God rejecting God when he speaks to them. And there could be all kinds of different reasons for that. But it seems to me that this is, I guess what, where I'm going with this is that this rejection of God, the ultimate rejection of God, here he is Emmanuel, um, becomes the occasion of God going to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So, well, anyway, ponder that. <laughs> I don't know if I have anything more to say right now. Oh, no, I think, I think it's good. I mean, it's, it's important to name, like, you know, Jesus was not the first... And, and, you know, we believe Jesus was more than a prophet, certainly. But Jesus, the, the prophets didn't fit. They didn't, like, they weren't successful. People didn't. No, they were not. <laughs> they were rejected. They were abused. Uh, and, you know, maybe we'll study Romans sometime soon if that appeals to people. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul goes on this poetic, chaotic, tangential, all over the place riff on what it all means for the gospel needing to be pre- preached to the Jews first, but them needing to reject it so the Gentiles can come in, but it then the Gentiles are in, more Jews can come in. I mean, he kind of goes on this this roller coaster all to basically um, give one the feel that us, uh, that our consistent tendency to reject God at work, which is consistent to Philip's point, doesn't stop God but only opens up more and more doors. I mean, that seems to be the major thrust of it. And so going back to Luke, it was necessary. Luke would say it was necessary for Paul to be stoned and for him to be rejected, that somehow it's just opening things up further for the purposes of God's salvation. Now, I don't pretend to know much more beyond that, but. Well, the wonderful comment on uh, the brothers of Jacob you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It seems it runs through the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other thoughts? I think well, this is you. a jam-packed uh, couple, you know, couple of, uh, of books or a couple of chapters. It is. It is. Well, basic principles. It is. Well, we've given ourselves lots to think about, um, whether it's, you know, God's relationship with suffering in our life or um, the other the other wonderful things we've talked about. But as always, I'm grateful for a group of people to study scripture with. I always learn a lot. Uh, you you teach me a lot, so thank you. And and I, again, I just want to like rejoice at I don't rejoice at COVID, but the whole God bringing good out of things. I mean, in what world would me and Philip and Martha, who I didn't even know about before COVID, be sitting in a virtual room together, you know, talking about the Gospel of Luke? Right? COVID has opened some doors and connected the church in interesting ways, and and bringing, you know, more and more people together. And so um, I, I want to name that as a, as a grace to, to, to be uh, happy about and thankful for. Me too. Me too. Thank you. <laughs> it's nice to know yeah. all of you.
I'll see you guys next week. I'll see y'all next week. Y'all have a wonderful week. You too. Thank you. Bye.